the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Backo Master. The following program is sponsored by Reaching Hearts Ministries. Welcome back to Reaching Your Heart. You could say we've been on a Genesis journey. In fact, that's the name of today's broadcast as we continue in the Genesis series. We are up to part number 17 here on Reaching Your Heart. Our phone number here is 877-788-5371, 877-788-5371. Feel free to call that number at any time with any questions that you have. You can also listen online at reachingyourheart.com to any of these messages. They are available for you under the broadcast schedule on the main page. Here now is Pastor Michael Oxentenka with The Genesis Journey. Dear Father, all things work together for good. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate good in our life. And Father, thank you that when you call us, you call us to live and to step out in faith and go places we've never gone before. In Jesus' name, amen. When God calls a man or woman to have a new beginning, he calls that man or woman to leave something behind for good. Now, I know that to be true. I have found it to be true in my own experience. You see, you cannot start over with God without forsaking something or someone that stands between you and God. And if you have felt the call of God and you have responded to the call of God and you have left nothing behind, dear heart, I doubt you have really followed the call of God. I will never forget the night just before I left home to become a Christian, really. It was a transitionary day for me. I was geared up to go to boarding school the next day. I had signed up for it, miraculously accepted into the academy, that Christian school in North Carolina. And it was a day, a transitionary time that would hold a mysterious power in my life that would unlock the potential of the future. I grew up in the Appalachian foothills in a little town called Galax, Virginia, probably named after the Galax Leaf. Has anyone here ever been to Galax, Virginia, drove by Galax? Well, it's a wonderful town in many ways. I don't have a great deal of fond memories about it in others. But it's a town that is known by many who try to leave as a town that has a way of holding you there and keeping you down. It has wonderful people there. But you try to escape that town if you grow up in the culture, it's very hard to get out and to go somewhere in life. In the valley where Galax is built, there are furniture factories that go way back in time. Families are born, they die working in those factories. The pay is little. In fact, it's like minimum wage. You can work all your life and you get ready to retire. Maybe you're a little bit above minimum wage, but not much more so. And if you're lucky, at the end of your retirement age, you may live a few years because the work is so hard, most people die shortly after they retire. My grandfather worked the factories and lost his fingers in a saw. I remember the day when he came back, the surgery had been performed on his hand. He was finished. He died at the age of 64, prematurely, I believe, because of discouragement and the like. My stepfather worked in a furniture factory till he retired. And when he retired, he died of sheer boredom shortly after. 
My mother worked in a furniture factory all her life, and it was hard work. I remember mom coming home from that furniture factory she worked at. Her hands were bleeding. You could see the arthritis in her joints. And I can remember mom just crying at the end of the day, saying, I don't want to go back to that factory. And In fact, over time, the furniture factory helped to break her health And I got my mom out of there. When I went to seminary, I made a decision to go back to pull my mom out of that town. So she left the factories for good. Most of my friends grew up in Galax, Virginia. They worked in those factories or they joined the military to get away. But one way or another, it seemed that the factory culture had a hold on everyone. I can remember as a little boy dreading the prospect of ending high school and having to go to those hothouses and to sand furniture, to use spray and the like. It was a dreadful thing to look forward to at the end of graduation. The factory had a big sucking sound for me. And I knew if I stayed there long enough, I'd never leave. It just kind of sucked me into the vortex, and I would be forever trapped in that little town. At the age of 15, I felt like crazy glue had a hold on my life. You ever felt that way? That something insane was just holding you back and robbing you of its potential. And I had no clue as to how to escape it and get out of it. To make matters worse, I made friends in Galax who were not friends of God, and they were no friends of mine, it turned out. They brought me into a life of what I would call crime, really. We were involved in a series of little felonies, which aren't little in God's eyes nor the law's eyes. And I don't want to talk about that because I view that as my life before Christ, and I don't like glorifying it here at all. But something happened inside me just before I turned 16 that was the work of God. There was a call in play inside my heart that I was not aware of at first, but it began to grow and the tug in time became clear to me. It was the tug of God. I couldn't understand it intellectually. I didn't understand it experientially, but I felt it to be the tug of God. I felt God calling me to leave Galax without money, without potential opportunities, without knowing where I was going, and go into a future I could not define. In fact, I felt him calling me to go to an academy I had no money to pay for, I had no way to sign up for, I had no good recommendations for. I felt him saying, go to Fletcher Academy in North Carolina. It was a miracle of God's grace. I got the application, signed it, wrote an explanation. I want to become a Christian. I'm not right now. I think going to Fletcher will help me become a Christian. And it must be the people who read my introductory appeal on my application, saw something there because they accepted me with no money and really no promise into that school that year. It was a window in my life, and I couldn't explain it, but the window opened, and I felt God's tug, and I knew that the window would not be open very long, and so by faith I stepped through that window, and things began to happen. Leave Galax, find God, was churning in my heart as a divine tension And I wanted to get out of town. It was the night before I left to go to Fletcher Academy. I was fishing on the banks of the New River in the Appalachians. My good friend Jeff was standing there with me on the banks of the New River. And as we were there fishing, I remember Jeff talking to me. And I was talking to him. We were reminiscing our years together and the trouble we'd gotten into. And in the dark of the night, I turned to Jeff and I begged Jeff to go with me. I said, Jeff, I want to become a Christian. I want to leave Galax. I'm tired of this kind of mentality where you cannot know God, where life is mere existence. Come with me, Jeff. 
God will get you into school like he got me into school. I'll vouch for you. I'll sign for you. I'll swear for you. Jeff, leave Galax and let's go for God together, Jeff. I never will forget Jeff there in a moment of silence, kind of pondering the appeal that I made to him with a fishing rod in his hand. He turned to me and he said, Mike, you're a fool. You're an utter fool. You're going to become a Christian and run your life at that school Christian school. What's this Christ business in your life all about? I'm not going with you anywhere. I'm going to travel the world and become a famous baseball player and a writer. I'm going to become a somebody in this world. And becoming a Christian simply is not compatible with success for me, Mike. No, you go, I stay. I'm going somewhere in life. The last time I ever heard of Jeff, he slipped into drugs and was serving jail time. He never made it to the minor leagues, and he never became a writer. He never became a famous baseball player. I don't know what ever became of this childhood friend of mine. I hope to God he came to know Jesus as a Savior. I know from experience, dear heart, that when God calls a man or woman to have a new beginning, He calls that man or woman to leave something or someone behind. I know that because it was true in my life. You cannot start over with God without forsaking the people and the environment that stands between you and God. Something which stands between faith and Jesus Christ must be removed when you hear the call. The decisive act of God and the plan of salvation started with a call to leave something behind. The call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 is in fact the beginning of the Genesis journey. God starts with one man. He calls him out of something toward something. It is the new beginning for the human race, the beginning of God's decisive activity in the plan of salvation. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Joshua 24 and verse 12. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, Your fathers lived of old beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And then he says this most amazing statement, They served other gods. You see, the father of faith did not start out as faithful. The father of the father of faith did not start out as a believer. He never, in fact, came to belief. The evidence is that Terah was an idolater till the day he died. God didn't start with an ideal situation when he called Abram. God started with a man who was stuck in an environment that was weighing him down and was preventing him from living for God in righteousness. So I ask the question as we read this verse, there were other gods that they worshipped. As you look into your life, are there other gods that you are worshipping? Are there things that have arisen in your life that have taken the place of God? Are there objects or people that mean more to you than Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior? Dear heart, are there other gods in your life that you must leave behind? The name Terah is most likely taken from a word meaning a mountain goat or ibex. In Ur of the Chaldees, goats were worshipped as gods. Dr. Woolsey, in his famous excavation of the royal tombs of Ur, found a beautiful golden idol that looked like a mountain goat with wings standing over the tree of life. And so the name Terah was not a name fashioned after the creator God. It was a name that drew attention to something like this idol. And it's no accident that the image of a goat has come down in modern times to represent Satan in the modern occult. So Terah was not a good name. Terah was not named after the truth of God or anything of the like. Terah was named after a goat demon, so to speak. Terah's name is also significant in Numbers 33:27. 
because it is the 24th campsite for Israel on their way to the promised land. They camped 42 times in Numbers 33. Number 24, right in the middle of their camping cycle, is Terah. That's the name of the spot. And so Terah represents a delay or tarrying place in the heart of a wilderness. He represents compromise with evil that is hard to overcome before you get to the promised land. Terah is a stationary kind of word. In the Genesis account, Terah set out for Canaan before God called Abram to journey to the promised land. Genesis 9.25, Canaan is the first family in the Bible to be cursed. Now think about that. There's a reason for that. It's the first nation in the history of the world to cross the line of no return to become so corrupt that divine judgment steps in and says, no more of this. So Canaan was famous for gross immorality on a scale that is unimaginable. Canaan was a land where children were sacrificed freely to gain favor with the gods. Canaan was sin city, Las Vegas in the ancient world. And so Terah wanted to go to the land of Canaan without the call of God. It's obvious what he wants. He doesn't want to go to a promised land because God has not spoken to him. He wants to go to Sin City, live it up, and to get into that culture of paganism and to just lose himself in carnality. Canaan was the most evil spot on planet Earth. It was where Terah wanted to live. In the scripture, there is no evidence that Terah is a good man that desired a good environment for his family. Now, have you ever thought about that? That's the kind of father Abram had. Abram did not have a righteous man for a father. He had a man named after a goat demon. He had a father who was enticed in the journey to move to a place which was full of compromise. He was not a righteous man. Now in Genesis eleven twenty six, 26, Terah was 70 years old when Abram was born. The Bible says when Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, the first usage of the number 70 is found in Genesis 5.12. So let's just take our Bibles and quickly look at that together. It says, When Kenan had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. Kind of a long, drawn-out name. Mahalalel means the praise of God. So the first time we find the number 70 in the Bible, we find a man's name which means praise of God. Now, in Genesis 10, when you look at the genealogy, you start doing the number counting there, the first nation, the second nation, the third nation, so on, you count all the nations that came out of Noah, you will discover that there were 70 nations that came from Noah. So somehow, this number 70, which means the praise of God, Mahalalel, associated with that, has something to do with a divine blessing for the human race. In Genesis 50, verse 3, we find the number 70 again. Here we have Jacob who is the grandson of Abram. He's being buried in the promised land, and the Egyptians are mourning for him 70 days. At the end of the book of Genesis, the number 70 is very important. On the way to the promised land, we find the children of Israel as they go, according to Genesis 46, 26, and 27, that when they do the number count for all the children of Jacob, there are exactly 70 children that go from Canaan into Egypt to start the nation of Israel. So the number of the sons of Israel was intended to match the number of the families of the world. Genesis 10, 70 nations making up the families of the earth. 
In Genesis 46, 70 children of Jacob goes down into Egypt. Now that brings us to a very amazing verse. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, here is the verse that pulls it together. The Bible says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of men, He fixed the bounds of the people according to the numbers of the sons of Israel. So the boundaries of the peoples of the earth was defined in the Bible according to the number of the sons of Israel. Now there were 70 children of Israel. There were 70 nations. It meant that the number of the children of Israel somehow in a meaningful way matches the number for the nations of the earth. So here's the question. What is the reason for this number match? Why do we find the two coming together here? Why do we have this crossover in this verse? Look at Exodus 15, 27. Here we have the key. The Bible says, speaking of Israel, they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. Now how many springs do we have in that verse? Count them. 12. How many palm trees grow up from the springs? Now, what's going on here? Why do we have these even numbers? Now, 12 is the number for the tribes of Israel. But 70 is the number for the nations of the world. You see, what the Bible is saying is this, is that somehow the 12 tribes of Israel represents 12 living springs of water that was meant to water the nations of the world. And from this living water that would arise within Israel, there would spring up righteous trees all over the world, symbolizing the people of the earth. In Psalms 1, a righteous man is like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And so the righteous among all the nations of the earth would find living water through the nation of Israel. It's no accident in the New Testament that Jesus chose 12 apostles because they became the springs of living water for the proclamation of the gospel. So the 70th year is so important. In the 70th year, Abram is born. Terah has lived 70 years, worthless years, years devoted to the worship of the moon god Sin and various other things. And now there is a turning point in the history of the world. Abram's birth marks a new genesis. Look at Genesis eleven twenty-seven. Let's read down to verse 32 to catch the full context of Abram's call. The Bible says, Now these are the descendants of Terah. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran was the father of Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Issachah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his granddaughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now like Noah... Terah had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, kind of like Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The second son's name, Nahor, comes from a Hebrew word that means to snort. Now imagine naming your child something like that, snort. I mean, going to a baseball game, and here he is, you know, he hits a home run at Little League, and the ball goes over the fence, and his mommy stands up in the stands, go for it, snorter. 
I mean, it's a crazy kind of thing to name your child, but that's what he was named. This was before the days of cocaine addiction. The root for the word Nahor is used twice in the Bible to describe angry horses snorting. Job 13, 19. Do you give this horse his might? Then verse 20, his majestic snorting is terrible. Same word, Nahor. Jeremiah eight sixteen. the snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. So wherever Nahor went, he was snorting like a horse. He was known as the snorter. Now why is this significant? The very first person or being actually in the Bible to snort was the serpent at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 3.1, we have a Hebrew word that's mostly untranslated. It's the word af, and it means nose. But it calls to mind doing this, kind of a snort. It sounds like an af. He says, has God said you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And so snorting belongs to the serpent. So not only is the goat the idea of the serpent, the snorter is the idea of the serpent as well. Nahor represents unrestrained anger and aggression in relationships. He is the snorter. In fact, the city of Nahor is a city in Assyria. Assyria is compared in Isaiah as a serpent with dragon's wings that attacks the land of promise. So Nahor had nothing good going for his life. His anger was out of control. He was under the control of the devil in every way. But he had one good thing actually going. It was his wife Milcah. And Milcah means queen. He had a queen in his life. And she was the daughter of Haran. Terah's third son was Haran. Now Haran's name is derived from the word for mountain. Heron represents righteousness by climbing up to God on your own mountain. I mean, universal to the religion of the ancient world was this fascination with mountains. Now, if you look in the word Heron, you'll see the H-A-R. That is the Hebrew word for mountain. Har Moed, mountain of the assembly. Har means mountain. Harmageddon in the book of Revelation, remember that? It means mountain of the assembly. It's simply a Greek version of Har Moed. So the inn in Haran's name is a grammatical attachment. Haran is the mountain man. A mountain was the idea behind every temple in the land of Babylon. The Tower of Babel was nothing but a ziggurat, a copy of a mountain with a staircase. And they would climb up that staircase to the top of that mountain-like structure and they would sacrifice at the top of that altar, believing that somehow if you can climb up to God, you can find God. And you always find Him at the top of a mountain. In the Bible, the God of Israel, dear heart, is not at the top of a mountain all the time. Even though he lives at the top of Mount Zion, God is in the business of leaving his holy mountain and coming down to find you. God is in the business of traversing the great distance between you and him to find you. And so the mountains in and of themselves are not that significant. The altar was built by the Hebrews on the top of a mound, a high place when they were in apostasy because they had rejected the notion that somehow God could reach out and find them. In Exodus 20, 24 to 26, the Bible says this, An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. And then he says, I shall cause my name to dwell there, and I will come to you and bless you. The key phrase is, I will come to you and bless you. You don't have to figure out how to come to God. God will come to you. And then in verse 26, you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. 
God is saying is this, is that you cannot climb up to Him. You cannot get on that staircase, ascend the holy mountain, and find Him at the top. God has to come down the mountain to find you where you live in life. So Abram was the first son of Terah, and he lived among a group of people who worshipped mountains, or worshipped on mountains. As you remember, Shem was the firstborn son of three sons born to Noah. The Hebrew name Shem means name. He was the tenth born from the line of Adam after the fall. Like Shem, Abram was the first son in the tenth generation from Noah. Now that's no accident. The number ten is full of meaning in the Bible. It is the number for God's law. It is the number for the covenant. And so here is the man who will call upon the name of the Lord. Here is the man who will discover the meaning of God's law written by faith inside his heart. Here is the man who will leave the past to move into the future with God. In fact, in the Bible, Abram is the first man after the flood who calls on the name of the Lord. In Genesis 4.26, we know that when they called on the name of the Lord, the first time in the Bible it says their names were written in the book, and they began to live. Here is the first man after the flood who calls on the name of the Lord. Look at Genesis 12, verse 8. Thence he removed to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Have you called on the name of the Lord lately in your life, or you just go through life doing nothing with God? Is God for you simply a distant deity that doesn't matter? Or is God for you the power that holds your life together, that gives you purpose for tomorrow and a focus in the future? Well, there you have it, the conclusion of the first part of the Genesis journey, and it is a part of the Genesis series. In fact, it's part number 17. We'll conclude this message tomorrow. We hope that you'll join us. Our phone number here is 877-788-5371, 877-788-5371. Feel free to call that telephone number at any time with any questions that you have. Reaching Your Heart is a listener-funded program. Thank you for helping us with a contribution. The address here is Reaching Hearts International, 15300, Spencerville Court, Suite 201, Burtonsville, Maryland, 20866. That's 15300, Spencerville Court, Suite 201, Burtonsville, Maryland, 20866. Thanks for listening, and as always, we want you to know that we pray that God is reaching your heart. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.